Go ahead and grab a seat. Sweet. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. By the way, um, we are, we're at the point now where we're kind of ha- we're having these messages on podcast again. Um, so uh, I know that so, like the last few from the book of Judges have been uploaded. So if you want, you can go back and listen to those or share them with somebody. Um, are we recording tonight? Yeah, Caleb is on it. Uh, so yeah, you can uh, go back and listen to tonight's message if you want. Um, or if you hated it, you can go back and find it and be like, hey, that's the one that I hated a lot. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, hey, uh, like I said earlier, if you've been with us, you know, we've been going through the book of Romans, um, and I'm pulling up my phone. I asked a question on Instagram today. I got a few answers, which is cool. Um, but, you know, we had, we're kind of back in the book of the Romans, and like I said earlier, the book of Romans is really the most in-depth, uh, the book that gives us the most in-depth explanation of the gospel. And when I say the gospel, it's what we mean. Gospel is, uh, means good news, right? The good news of how it is that we have been redeemed, how we've been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is really, the book of Romans gives us the best and most clear explanation of all of this. For 11 chapters, Paul goes through extensive detail to explain this to the church in Rome. And a good, uh, a good way for you to be able to kind of just understand a lot of Paul's epistles uh, in the New Testament is as you read them, what you'll find is that typically in the early beginning stages of his epistles. He kind of gives an explanation of the gospel, whether it's super in-depth like we have here in Romans, or maybe it's very brief, uh, like sometimes you have in other uh, gospels. But there's some aspect of, uh, of the gospel is presented, and then the second half or the second part of his epistle is really application of the gospel. Uh, and you see this very clearly in Romans, the first 11 chapters is Paul explaining how it is that we are made right with God and all the implications of that. And then starting in verse chapter 12, he goes on and applies it. You see this um, in all of his letters. Now, if I'm being honest, there's a real battle that I see many Christians deal with when it comes to their relationship with God. I see it all the time. We see it a lot uh, in Christians, especially in younger Christians, um, it's not specifically a younger Christian issue, but I think it's something that most younger Christians, even myself, uh, we deal with uh, quite regularly, and it's that we fail to experience the fullness of joy that the gospel provides. We fail, we, we believe in the fact that we are saved from our sins, we believe it, but there's an aspect of the fullness of joy that can be found in placing our faith in Christ, we fail to experience on a regular basis. Of course, we're happy to have a relationship with God. Maybe this is where you find yourself, right? Like, I I believe that I'm saved. I believe I have a relationship with God. And I know that this should be something that brings me a lot of joy. And it does. But my joy kind of fluctuates. My joy is here today, gone tomorrow. It's hard for me to really be, you know, find this constant state of joy that I find in Scripture is something that I should be experiencing, or we, we know that we're saved from our sins, and, but the full freedom of what that brings is something that we, we never really fully understand or we never really fully begin to experience. We, we, we are freed from our sins, but we still live as if we're in bondage, right? We're freed from our sins, but we still live as if we're in bondage. 
And, well, and you know, if I was to go around the room and I was to ask you, what are the top benefits of a relationship with God? I'd get a lot of different answers. I asked earlier on Instagram, I asked this question. I'm not going to say who answered what, so don't, don't, don't worry. Um, but I asked this question. I said, what is, said, what is a benefit of your relationship with God? Just to see what people would say. Got a lot of really good answers. One, it says, it means no worries for the rest of your days. I don't know if they're quoting Lion King or not there, but sure seems like it. Um, I'm freed from fear. Another person said salvation, knowing that you have a home in Christ, relationship with a never-changing God. Another person said internal peace that couldn't come from anything but God. Another person said peace. Another person said he gives life, he gives life meaning and purpose, purpose and uh, a purpose, meaningful life. Another person said knowing that I will always have a friend by my side. Another person said joy. Another person said guidance, wisdom from his Holy Spirit and from the word of God. Well, all of these things are wonderful things. And here's the thing. All of those things are things that we get to experience through a relationship with Christ. These are all benefits of having a saving relationship with God through the blood of Jesus. And while all of those things are wonderful things, many of them are things that kind of oftentimes fluctuate, right? So oftentimes there are things that are kind of here today, there are things that are here today that come and go sometimes. Oftentimes, you know, for me, one of the greatest things that I get to experience as a Christian is the community that it brings. You know what I mean? Having like-minded friends and, and the relationships that come along with that. But here's the thing, like friendships and relationships come and go. Also, we would say that a lot of the things that we see to an extent are, are, are temporary. Maybe they, they can be taken away. Here's the thing. The question I have for you is this, is what are the eternal benefits of a relationship with God and how do the eternal benefits fuel your temporary ones? See, in the first we're in chapter 5 of Romans, and in the first four chapters, Paul has gone through extensive lengths to explain certain things. So I'm just going to give you a brief recap of the first four chapters, because here's the thing. If you don't understand the first four chapters, you're going to fail to understand the significance of what we're going to read in the fifth chapter. Chapter 1, God, reveal, God is revealing his wrath against mankind because all of mankind has rejected the truth of the revelation of who God is. All people are guilty of rejecting God, and because of this, all people are liable to receive the judgment of God. Romans chapter 2, God's judgment against the world is fair, it is right, and it is just. This judgment is against all people, both Gentile and Jews. Even the religious Jew has fallen short of God's righteous standard. Even those who had the law in the first century, even those who had the commandments of God have still fallen short. They fall short of God's righteous standards. So while Romans 1 establishes a universal guilt, chapter 2 takes time to clarify that this is, even includes those that are moral and religious. Chapter 3, God's wrath is poured out against the sinfulness of humanity because his righteousness and his justice must be upheld. And because God is good and God is righteous, he must punish sin appropriately. In order to do this, he put forth his son, Jesus as a propitiation or as a payment that satisfies a debt to take the punishment that sinful humanity deserves. That your sins and my sins, God's wrath for our sins, was paid for on the cross by Jesus. And we are justified before God by his grace. It is an act of, 
unmerited favor that we are saved. We are saved not by our works. We're saved by God's grace. But here's the question. How do we receive this grace? This is the last thing that we talked about in the book of Romans, if you remember, is, okay, we acknowledge that we're saved by grace, but how do we receive this grace, right? Through the Catholic, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic would say that we receive this grace through faith and sacraments, what the Bible teaches is that we receive this grace strictly by faith. Romans chapter 4 goes on to explain this, that the perfect example of justification by grace received by faith alone would be Abraham. He's the poster child for righteousness to the Jews. Paul clearly explains how even Abraham's righteousness was not because of his circumcision or his obedience to the law, but rather because of his faith in God that manifested itself in obedience. Does this make sense? So what we have established is all people are wicked and bad. God has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and made right with him, and at the same time, him still be just. And we receive this grace by, play, by trusting in Jesus and, tr- and having our faith in the person and the finished work of Christ. That's what we have established so far. You all with me? You smelling what I'm stepping in? Cool beans. All right. Chapter 5. All right. Now, chapter 5 is probably one of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. So much so that we're not going to get super far into it tonight. Let's go back to what I said earlier. Is that I believe that the reason that people do not find comfort in their walk with God that they probably expect to, or maybe you're in this room and, and you have your faith in Jesus, but you struggle to experience the joy that you feel like you should experience... I would say that it's probably because there is a flaw somewhere in your understanding of what it means to be saved. Does this make sense? I'm not saying you're not saved, okay? We're not saved because we have, like, perfect knowledge, right? And we're not saved because we have perfect faith. We're saved because we have imperfect faith in a perfect God. But I think that the experience of what that, your everyday experience of this salvation and how it applies into your temporary day-to-day life is going to be greatly impacted by your understanding of what it means. So Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, therefore, I've just explained what that therefore is therefore, Okay. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into the grace, into this grace, which, in which we now stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, the suffering, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, we're going to talk about what is the benefits of a relationship with Jesus. The number one benefit that Paul lays out here. 
Number one benefit is peace with God. Peace with God. And it's interesting that the very first thing that Paul references as the primary benefit of a saving relationship with God is that we have peace with God. And like I said, if I was to ask you to list down, now obviously like we have some great answers. And all of them are true and they're correct. If I was to ask, what is the top benefit of a relationship with God? Every single one of us should put that we have peace with God. Now, what I mean when I say peace with God, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying like, like psychological like, like rest. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm not talking about emotional peace or or experiential. Uh, you know, or, or what I'm talking about when I say peace with God. Something that's very, very important because there's a tendency for all of us in this room to fall in love with a lot of benefits of being in a relationship with Jesus, but we grow numb to the number one thing that Paul lists. How many times do you wake up in the morning and you say, God, thank you that, you are, that I am not your enemy? Thank you, God, that there is peace between us. We grow numb to it. Part of this is because we, prob- don't prob- we don't properly understand what it means to not have peace with God. See, if I was to ask everyone in this room to explain to me what the state of a person is apart from Jesus, by definition, what I'm also asking you is the state that you were at one time were in before you were saved. Scripture makes it clear that we could sum it up by saying that we were enemies of God. Enemies of God. Something that's important to understand is that the Bible teaches that every single person that does not have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ is an active enemy of God. Just a few verses for me. to I have six verses that, and there's dozens I could have read, but I'm just going to give you six. Philippians 3.18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Job 13.24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? That's Job speaking to God. Nahum 1.2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. We established in chapter 1, right, that all of us are liable for the wrath of God because of our sin. And his wrath is reserved for his enemies, so we can establish, hey, we're enemies. Romans 1.30, we are haters of God. Romans 8.7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And I could continue, I just gave you half a dozen verses, but I can continue over and over and over again, highlighting verses that make clear the point that there is an enmity between sinful man and a holy God. You with me? Because this is crucial for us to understand that there is no person in the world that is neutral towards God. Nobody. No one is neutral when it comes to God. Either you love God or you hate God. And only can you, the only way you can love God is through a right relationship with Christ. So either you have a right relationship with Christ or you hate God. Those are your options. That's what the Bible lays out as clear. There's no person that is neutral towards God. And a lot of us, we would say, yeah, I know this, but here's what I want you to find. So Ligonier does a, a state of theology survey every two years. 
and they came out with their new one. Their newest one was released uh, a couple months ago. I want you to hear there's two questions that I find fascinating the responses to. Here's one of the questions. It says, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Agree or disagree? 71% of U.S. adults agree. Which would be incorrect. Scripture teaches that we are born into sin. That we are born, we are by nature children of wrath. But you're like, okay, that's U.S. adults, that's fine. Well, let's look at what evangelical Christians in the United States answered this question. 65% of them agree. 65% of professing Christians would say that every person is born innocent in the eyes of God. This is basics. But the Bible says that is not the case. You see the problem here? That nearly 70% of professing Christians see themselves as being born innocent? There's this view that you are neutral towards God until you choose not to be. I think this is how a lot of us look at our friends or our family members or even ourselves at one time. Is that, okay, like, we're neutral towards God until maybe you choose not to be neutral anymore. Right? As long as you're not actively, like, being spiteful towards God or, you know, whatever, then you're fine. Like, you can remain neutral. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Right? teaches that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2. Continuing on in Ephesians 2, it says that we are by nature children of wrath. I just read half a dozen scriptures that in no uncertain terms designate us as enemies of God, not passive enemies of God, active enemies of God, haters of God, Romans 1. Another question from the survey, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of U.S. evangelical Christians agree. 56% of professing Christians in the United States agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. Meanwhile, the Bible makes it extraordinarily clear that it is only by faith in Christ that our worship is at all acceptable. So any worship that is apart from Christ is unacceptable worship. Here's what we need to know, that attempts to worship God apart from Jesus are acts of hostility towards him. Even the things that seem good and seem well-intentioned when they are done apart from Jesus are acts of treason against God. Let me make that clear, because as enemies of God, any act towards him, even the ones of supposed worship, are acts of warfare and hostility towards God when done apart from a right and saving relationship with Jesus. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some of you are like, what does this have to do with peace with God? Because look, this is so pivotal to understand, because as a non-regenerated, unsaved person, you're You're sinful, you are sinful, not strictly because of what you do, but because of who you are. Is this resonating? That the reason that people are sinful is not necessarily because they do bad things. People are sinful because it's by nature who they are, and they do bad things because of their sinful nature. Does this make sense? 
And that is so massive for us to understand because we need to know that the reason that there is no peace with God, the reason that there is enmity towards God and hostility towards God is not only because of what we do, because it's who we are. So even my attempts to please God outside of a right relationship with him are acts of treason and hatred towards him. Why is this? Hebrews 10 makes this very clear. Hebrews 10 tells us that when we seek to approach God by by way of any other sacrifice other than the sacrifice of Jesus, we profane his name because we treat the blood of his son as something that is common. That's what Hebrews 10 teaches, is that to seek to approach God apart from a right relationship with Christ, even to come to God, to worship him, but by in rejecting Jesus while trying to do so, is profaning the blood, the blood of Jesus. That is why it is an act of hostility towards God. We reject his greatest work. You see, in our nature, we are blasphemers and rebels against a holy God and by nature at war with the God of creation. So when we say we have peace with God, what are we saying? What we're saying is that God has defeated us. That's what we're talking about. When we say, man, I am at war with God, because here's the thing, if you're at war with God, that also means God is at war with you. Scripture makes this extremely clear, especially in the book of Psalms, where we see that the enemies of God are ultimately destroyed. And as an enemy of God, when we're saying that we have peace with God, what we're saying is, look, we didn't come to an agreement. We didn't sign a treaty We didn't negotiate. We were defeated. God defeated me. See, everything that I do as a sinful person, apart from the blood of Jesus, is an act of aggression against God. And so because of this, I need to be defeated, not negotiated with, not reasoned with. I need to be defeated, beaten. It's not a matter of me getting my act together and surrendering. We've established that that's against my nature. We're talking about people who need to be saved. We're talking about people that need to be defeated by God. What I need is to be defeated by God, and in my defeat, God creates a new man in place of the old man. Does this make sense? Because if he does not, what we've already established is that by nature, I hate him. So God destroys the old man and in the place of the old man establishes and creates a new one. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if our hostility and our enmity with God was based on our spiritual nature, then how is it that I can have peace with God? It's because God has defeated me and made me new. This is what it means to be saved. Not that I pray to prayer. Not that I seek to worship and please God. Because there's a lot of people that seek to worship and please God and are not saved. Hindus, Buddhists, Muslim, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet passionately seeking to worship God and are doing so apart from Christ and do not please him. 
Matthew 7, what we've been studying the past couple weeks on Sunday morning, what not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who talks about Jesus has a relationship with him. So if my enmity with God is because of who I was, my peace with God is because also of who I now am. I have been made new. I have been changed. It isn't strictly that God has enlightened me and now given me the ability to be pleasing to him. He has defeated and changed me to where now I have a new nature that pleases him. Does this make sense? That God is not strictly pleased by the things that I do. He is pleased by who I am. Not because of anything that I have done, but because of who he has made me to be. Does this make sense? And this is so huge because there's so many Christians that live their lives miserable and beat down and shameful and full of guilt because they feel like God is not pleased with them. But you need to know that if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you have the old man is gone, the new man has come, you need to know that you are pleasing to God because of who he has made you to be. That you don't have to strive to please him. Galatians 2, 20 and 21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Do you see what, man, like, this is huge. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How can I do that? How can I please God, not strictly by singing songs or reading my Bible or praying? How can I please God by the way that I conduct myself at school? Is God only pleased with me when I share the gospel? Of course, he is pleased with you when you share the gospel, but is he only pleased? No, he's pleased with you from the moment you rise to the moment you go to sleep. Because of who he has made you to be. I don't do this in my own efforts. I do it because of who God has made me. If I could do it in my own efforts, then the cross was worthless and meaningless. See, having peace with God is the greatest thing that a person could possibly fathom. We aren't talking about a change in behavior. It's a change in nature. See, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And so many of us see our salvation as the fact that God has just taken me from being bad and made me good. But no, that's not what it is. God has taken you from dead and made you alive. God has taken you from a wretch and into a saint. He has changed who you are through the act of Christ on the cross. You're not saved because of your acts. You're not saved because you prayed the prayer. You're saved because of what God has done on your behalf that you could not do. Now, for some of you, you may already understand this. You get it. But for others, this is a totally new understanding of what salvation means. Right? Totally understanding, new, different understanding of what salvation means. See, the call of the gospel to the unbeliever is not come and be made better. It's come and be made new. It's come and be made new. 
And it is this regeneration that God does that then makes you acceptable in the sight of God and pleasing to him. I feel that many of us don't experience the full joy of salvation because we lack this truth. We feel that the stresses of seeking to live a life that is pleasing to God is burdensome. It's hard to please God. I want to please God, but it's hard. No, it's not. Is it hard to be obedient? Of course, because we have a sinful flesh. But God is pleased by who he has declared you to be. We wrestle with the fact that we have a sinful flesh. Perhaps when we sin, we wear the guilt and the shame, and we feel like we can't approach God because of our sin. We feel shame for the things that we do. And this is where we need to understand the fundamental difference between our position and our condition, okay? Big point. Your position and your condition. You see, your position with God as someone that has been saved by the blood of Jesus is the position of a child. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as Scripture tells us, and God sees you as beautifully adorned and perfect and spotless. That is your position as a Christian. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. When God looks at you, he sees his beautiful child. Even when you don't feel like it, that's who he has declared you to be. And that is good news. Don't wear that shame and that guilt of your past decisions, even the decisions that you've made earlier today. Don't wear that guilt and that shame when Christ has declared you as the position of a beautiful child. See, the position of every Christian is that. However, our condition frequently does not match our position. We still wrestle with the sinful flesh. Romans 7, Paul makes this extremely clear when he describes this tension between the sinful flesh and the spirit of God that he has caused to dwell within him. He also does this in Galatians 5. But Galatians 7, 17 says, So now it is no longer I who sin, but it is the sin that dwells within me. Right? He talks about this idea. We see that God sees Paul as spotless and righteous because of the cross. But Paul sees Paul as someone who still wrestles with his sin on a daily basis. And this is the tension that we all deal with until we see Christ face to face, right? That we have been made alive in Christ, declared righteous, seen as spotless in the eyes of God, but we wrestle on a daily basis with a sinful flesh. We all sin. This is reality. However, here's the thing. You cannot allow your condition as a person who wrestles with sin to cloud your understanding of your position as someone that is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. To claim that God is ashamed of you as his child is to claim that God is ashamed of Jesus. This is what the cross accomplishes. To clothe you in the righteousness of Jesus 
The fact that you have peace with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus is something that should be a reminder to yourself every single day. When you sin, remind yourself that I have peace with God through Jesus. When you feel shame and guilt for your past, remind yourself that I have peace with God through Jesus. When you feel as if you cannot approach God, preach to yourself, I have peace with God through Jesus. That's what you need to remind yourself. But here's the thing. If you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus, that is not reality for you. You are still an enemy of God. Scripture is very clear with what God does with his enemies. It's only by faith in Jesus that you can stand and say that I'm a child of God. Here's something we need to know. That not everyone on earth is a child of God. Only those that have a saving relationship with Jesus are children of God. So we, we see our first benefit, which is the longest one, so don't worry. Our first benefit is peace with God. Our second benefit is like it, it is standing grace, Romans 5.2. Through him we have also obtained by faith, we have, sorry, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. See, the second benefit that we experience is a standing grace that we enjoy every single day. Now, the Greek verb here, to stand, I just finished my Greek, had my Greek final last week, so this is fresh on the brain. But the Greek verb tense here for stand carries this idea of it is not an idea of simply just standing, but it is an idea of standing that has no end. It is a continual standing. It is a permanent status. That's what it means. So it is a continual state of standing in God's grace. You see, through Jesus, we enjoy the endless riches of God's grace. And many Christians have this idea that they're saved by grace, but they remain saved by a combination of God's grace and their efforts. I will be real with you and honest with you. That is where I found myself for the majority of my life. And it is liberating when you see that I'm not holding on to my salvation. God is. And God never loses that which he holds on to. Paul speaks directly against this point in Galatians 3, verses 2 through 3. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Basically, Paul is going on, he's saying this. What makes you think that you're saved by the Spirit, but you remain saved by the flesh? Paul's basically asking, does that make sense? Answer, no, it does not. John MacArthur has a quote that I think is extremely powerful and super simple. He says this, is that if you could lose your salvation, you would. Simple. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about easy believism. I'm not saying that if you just pray this prayer or pray after me and pray this prayer, then you can be sure of an eternity with Christ. That's not what I'm saying. Because I know a lot of people who pray the prayer and, you know, years down the road, it seems like, man, they're, 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 they're never saved. They were never saved. Here's what I am saying is that if you have been changed by the Holy Spirit of God, you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit as a mark of the seal of your salvation, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, if that is reality for you, you will never lose that status. 
Does this make sense? You have standing grace. It is a grace that is continual. It is a grace that is permanent. It is a grace that is with you. Always. For those who are truly saved, the mercies and the grace of God are unending. I want you to think about what this means. Because as a Christian, you are in standing grace. It means that you don't have to prove that you're worthy of God's love. You don't have to prove anything to God. It means that God is not ashamed of you. But he delights in you. It means that you have permanent access to him that cannot be revoked from you. It means that you don't have to check the boxes that Jesus has checked for you. It means that you can spend more time rejoicing in God rather than loathing yourself. This should bring joy to your heart. See, the verb tense here for we have access in the Greek is also the same thing. It indicates a permanent standing. It is a permanent possession that cannot be taken away. The fact that you have access with God, if you have access to God right now through the blood of Jesus, that is something you will always have. It cannot be removed from you. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What does Paul say? He goes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord if that does not encourage you then you're not a Christian. I don't know what else to tell you. If that doesn't at least make you go, that's cool, then there's something dead. That is, man, woo, get your handkerchief, right? That'll make a Baptist Pentecostal in a moment. Man, that is a reason to rejoice. And this is powerful truth. So many Christians do not experience the fullness of joy of their salvation because they're constantly afraid that they're going to lose it. Or they're constantly afraid that they can't experience it because God is ashamed of them when they sin. No. Rid yourself of that anxiety. Rid yourself of those chains that bind you and hold you down. Live a life of freedom and joy, knowing that God is pleased with you today. He'll be pleased with you tomorrow. Some of us are saying, okay, well, what does that mean about how should I view my sin? Well, that's what Paul references in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin? He says, by no means, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks when we get to Romans 6. But for now, it's all encouragement, right? Because of these great truths, we have another benefit. 
We have joy for eternity, and we have joy and hope for now. Of course, this truth gives us hope for eternity, and that almost goes unsaid, right? That we have this hope that we will spend eternity with God. No matter what happens to us right now, as soon as I die, as soon as I breathe my last, Scripture says to be absent of the body is to be present with the Father. Hallelujah, amen, pass the grits. That's awesome. What does this mean for right now? Notice what Paul goes on to say, Romans 5, 2 through 5. says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This gives us hope and reasons to rejoice even in the midst of our current sufferings, how is that possible? How is it that God forgiving me of my sins makes, it, makes me able to rejoice when my loved one is diagnosed with cancer? How is the fact that I've been forgiven of my sins make it easy, uh, make, it, make it to where I can rejoice when I feel unloved by my friends and family? How is it that me having peace with God makes it to where I can rejoice and, you know, fill in the blank? Like, I get how that makes me rejoice in the future, but, like, how does that make me rejoice now? How does the gospel give me reason to rejoice when all of these different things? See, we rejoice because, here's the thing, we know that the suffering we are experiencing, one, points us to a greater hope. It, right? Death now points us to the hope that there will not be death one day. But even more so, it helps us to understand that it's because God loves us that these trials come upon us. You see, because we have peace with God and we are no longer, in, no longer enemies of God, we understand that every single thing that we receive from him is a good gift and it is not meant to harm us. You see, if you did not have peace with God, then you have no reason to think that he's not punishing you. But because you are seen as righteous in the eyes of Jesus, that you are purchased, you are bought by the blood of Christ, that you are forgiven, you are seen as God's child, clothed in his righteousness, when you, because of this, and you know that God has nothing against you, then you know that everything he gives you is simply because of his love for you. So even the difficult things, we can have confidence in understanding this, that at least I, I have purpose for my pain. And because I, hold, he, I know that he holds no iniquity against me, I know that it is for my good that these trials are happening. And not as an act of punishment, but because God is working to create within me something for my good and for his glory. Nothing bad that happens to me is because God is punishing me. It's because God is working something greater within me. And that doesn't, take, that doesn't make the things not hurt, but it makes it to where I can rejoice when it hurts. Last thing, we have assurance of God's kindness. Now, some of you may be sitting here and you're thinking, Mike, you know, that sounds great. But how do I know that this is true? How can I be sure that God is not ashamed of me? When I feel ashamed of me, how can I be sure that God's not ashamed of me? How can I be sure that God desires to give good gifts to me? How can I be sure that God is not angry with me? 
Romans 5, 6 through 11. Just keep reading. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are all, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's what Paul is saying. If you need to be reassured of God's love for you, think about this. What did God do for you while you were his enemy? He sent his son to die for you. What now will he give you now that you're his child? You see that? If you're confused or if you doubt God's love for you, think about this. What did God do for you while you were his enemy? He sent his son to suffer and die for you. How much more will he give you now that you're his child? I think that's something that a lot of us profess, but we may not necessarily believe it. Or you just need to be reminded of it every single day. Never lose sight of what it means to have peace with God. See, when we doubt God's loving kindness, we look at the cross. What does it say? That God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for me to clean it up. He didn't wait for me to get my act together. He didn't wait. No, he died for me while I was still cursing his name. I've given this example a bajillion times. But like when you get to take a shower, right? You don't clean yourself off before you get in the shower. You get in the shower to be clean. You don't clean yourself off before you come to Christ. You come to Christ and he cleans you. That's why we come to him as we are. And this is what we need to be reminded of. See, not simply that we look to the cross, but the fact that he came while we were still sinners and then he went to that cross. Because if he waited for us to get our act together and then he went to the cross... But you need to understand this, and we're going to get to this even more as we continue in the book of Romans. God makes the first move, always. God does not wait for you to come to him before he comes to you. Because of that, we have the incredible privilege of being children of God. Don't let this idea of being a child of God just be a cliche that you hear and then you let it go. Let it be something that changes the way you look at yourself. Let it be a way that it changes the way that you look at others. And let it be a way that changes the way that you look at people who are lost and you see the joy and the contentment that they do not have and say, man, I have something that you would just... Mm. And here's the thing. When we preach a gospel other than the clear gospel... We sell people short of the truth that I just explained. We promise, it's like the bag of Lay's chips that looks so full, and then when you open it, it's got like three chips in it. That's the gospel a lot of people preach. Looks great, but there's no substance. You cannot enjoy the benefits of Romans chapter 5 if you don't go through the butt whooping of Romans chapters 1 through 3. 
You guys with me? Does this make sense? Cool. Well, be encouraged. You know, um, and we'll, I guess we'll end the recording or whatever, but like, like, there's not a whole lot of just sermons that I give that are strictly encouragement sermons, so enjoy it. Just kidding. Uh, but, man, I think we need that, though. You know what I'm saying? We need to be reminded of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, that you're not just a bad person made better, that you are a dead person who's made new. I'm going to pray. I want to let you guys go. If you want, we like to go to Chick-fil-A. It's nice weather outside, too. So I hope you guys can make it out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for who you have said that we are, Father, that we can take, we can have confidence, we can approach the throne of grace boldly, as Hebrews says. Knowing, Father, that's not because of anything that we've done, but only because of what you have done that we place our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we can enjoy the fact that we have uninterrupted access to you. We have a constant standing in your grace. And that, Father, that when we feel shame and guilt, that we can be rid of that knowing that you do not see that in us. Father, your word says you've taken our sins and you have separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. God, allow that to be something that changes the way that we live. God, if there's anyone in this room that they're not sure if they can say that that's a reality for them. Father, I pray that you convict them of their sin, draw them to yourself, help them to know that they can talk to anyone in this room about that. God, I thank you, praise you, in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, y'all, love, peace, and chicken grease.